Hello, and welcome to episode 20 of the Investor's Guide to China. I'm Catherine Young, Investment Director at Fidelity International. And I'm Marty Dropkin, Head of Equities, Asia Pacific. Marty, it certainly has been an extremely hectic period. I mean, we're only in March, but we're currently looking through a plethora of corporate earnings out of China. And of course, closely monitoring the ongoing news relating to SVB, Credit Suisse, and the overall global banking sector. It has been a really busy few weeks and especially a really busy last few days, Catherine, as you highlight, regarding the Silicon Valley Bank issue at the Fed has stepped in. But you never know, we may not have seen the end of that story yet. We also just had news regarding the emergency takeover of Credit Suisse by UBS. But back to the US issues around Silicon Valley Bank and other financial institutions. It's impacted a lot of companies globally in the tech space. And that's really what our focus is on in today's episode in terms of technology, innovation, and artificial intelligence. So on this note, I'd like to introduce Terence Tsai, who's an analyst and portfolio manager based in Hong Kong. Hey, Terence. Hey. I know you've been incredibly busy, not just this year, but even over the past few years. Now, you really focus on semiconductors and the industry overall, but you know, people don't usually go, wow, semiconductors is such an interesting area to be talking about. So not exactly box office exciting. But can you tell us, in your words, why the industry is being dragged onto the front pages of newspapers? I think first it starts with consumers feeling the pinch during the COVID years, where they were unable to purchase some of the things they wanted to buy. For example, their PS5, their PCs, their smartphones. I think the, the, the chip shortage kind of brought semiconductors front and center in front of the consumer. And I think the reason why that happened was also because of a fundamental change in the way semiconductors are used. In the early days, it was a very military product. And then it became a very PC-centric product. And now we have chips in, in everything, in our toasters, in our fridges. So I think that's the reason why it's so integrated with our lives, that when it's missing, when you can't buy a car because of a chip, when you can't buy a PS5 because of a chip, it uh, has a bigger and deeper impact on people's lives, and it matters more. So Terrence, picking up on Catherine's comments on geopolitics, could you briefly explain the CHIPS Act? Talk about that in the context of U.S. sanctions and how they affect the overall industry. So in the very early stages of the semiconductor industry, when, when they were building that ecosystem, the designers designing the chip and manufacturing the chip was done by the same companies. It was done on the same geographical locations. It, it was something you couldn't split. Uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't disintegrate. And there was a the famous saying, uh, real men have fabs. And that was the, the, the idea behind that. And uh, with globalization, uh, you saw chip makers start to outsource their manufacturing overseas uh, for cost reasons, for productivity, efficiency reasons. And that's why most of the manufacturing of chips are done in the East, in Asia. And most of the designs are done in the West, uh, mostly in the, in the United States. But because there's no security in just designing a chip, there's incentive from a national security perspective to bring manufacturing back to your shores or reshoring. And that's what the CHIPS Act is uh, designed to do, is to incentivize or at least bring down the cost differentials of making a chip on U.S. soil versus making them uh, overseas. 
But then yet, Terence, you know, you see Taiwan and Korea. I mean, they really lead the industry. So they've got both the, the R&D as well as the manufacturing prowess, essentially. Is that right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, they took decades to build up this expertise, and they have it down to a science. That's why we were able to buy uh, better and better versions of iPhones for essentially the same price or very little price increases because they've made better chips at lower costs or the same cost for consumers. Why is it so hard to manufacture chips? And, you know, we keep seeing, you know, the number of chips increase per unit of volume and the cost going down. Is there any limit to that? The reason why chip making is so hard is because it's almost science fiction-like. You are trying to shrink transistors down to less than the size of a human hair and reaching atomic levels. So we are talking about atomic level particles and really pushing the physical limits of science. And I think that there's a, there's a knowledge base that's built up and there's no manual on how to do it. So definitely a lot going on and really fascinating developments when it comes to tech hardware. But then on the demand side, we're also seeing ample growth, not just from existing customers like computer manufacturers and smartphone companies, but also emerging trends such as electric vehicles, EVs, and artificial intelligence, AI. Now, to understand more on the tech trends in China that's gaining popularity, as well as alternatives to the popular chat GPT, I spoke to Mia Huan, innovation intelligence leader Fidelity, who is based in Dalian. China. Mia, thanks so much for joining us. Tell us more about your team's work at Fidelity. Yeah, thank you, Catherine. I am an innovation intelligence lead in Fidelity. Our innovation team mainly focuses on the horizon scanning and conduct research on emerging technologies or the innovative business practices or the shifting consumer uh, behaviors. Uh, basically, anything that's could have an impact uh, on how we operate as a business or how we engage with our clients. So whether it's horizon scanning or identifying trends with relating to the consumer, what are some of the emerging trends you're seeing specifically that are really gaining traction? One of the uh, very hot topic now in China is the artificial intelligence chatbot, ChatGPT. So it is actually a highly intelligent chatbot developed by a U.S.-based company called OpenAI. Although it is not officially available here in China, it still gains a lot of traction from the uh, Chinese people and also the online discussions. And there are a dozen of mini-apps available on WeChat, which is our super app in China. They claim that they can offer service from ChatGPT. Uh, so are we seeing a Chinese version emerge of ChatGPT? I'm not sure if we can say that, you know, although almost all the tech giants in China, like Baidu, Alibaba, or LetEase, they all announced their similar project recently, but there isn't really a, a chatbot from those tech giants in China now. But there is a startup in China. They launched their version in early January, and they claim to be the first ChatGPT-like chatbot trained on Chinese language. It is called ChatYuan. Uh, so have you actually tried uh, ChatYuan? Yes, I actually have tried to interact with the chatbot and we can show you how it looks like. And before we play the recording, I have to remind you that it's a text input chatbot. So what you're hearing now is a translated version while text-to-speech software. Who are you? 
Hello, I'm AI Chat Yuan. I can answer your questions, write articles, do homework, translate. I can also provide information in the legal field. Can you write a poem to briefly summarize the story of Romeo and Juliet? Romeo and Juliet, two hearts cultivated in a lifetime. Inseparable for a lifetime until eternity. Are there similar stories in China? Yes, Liang Shanwa and Zhu Tai, also known as butterfly lovers. What's your opinion on ChatGPT? ChatGPT is a very advanced natural language processing technology, which can answer various questions. It is based on natural language and has a powerful training data set. I think it will give people a more productive and natural way to have conversations with AI. How are you compared with ChatGPT? I think I have a lot in common with ChatGPT. I have a very strong training data set. Plus, I have a very powerful algorithm to learn the dialogue, which means I can respond to user questions much faster. So do you think you are better than ChatGPT? I don't think I'm inferior to it. So here we asked the chatbot to write a Chinese poem to summarize the story of Romeo and Juliet. I would say it sounds a lot better in Chinese because it's really um, you know, a lot bad Chinese poem. So a, a dedicated chat box for, for Chinese users. One thing that strikes me though, Mia, could this trend somewhat be derailed at all by regulation? Uh, yes, that's a good point because like uh, the regulators in China, they are really sensitive about you know what the, what this kind of chatbot would uh, give the users uh, uh, the answers. Uh, actually, uh, the Chinese regulators already uh, told the tech giants in China that they need to report to the regulators before they launch the ChatGPT-like service, and also. As we see with the Microsoft implementation with this Bing search engine, that you know sometimes the ChatGPT like chatbot they can give like misinformation or you know wrong answers very confidently and also sometimes hallucination. So it could be a problem in the context of search. Yes, but I guess at least the regulators are monitoring this area and ahead of the curve, so as to speak, with policy going forward. And of course, what's come through in the National People's Congress is, you know, this focus that the Chinese government does have on innovation and creating a digital economy platforms. And this bodes very well with the future trends that you've identified. Mia, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Catherine. Catherine, that was such an amazing interview with Mia, and I particularly like the use of the chatbot as part of your conversation with her and the nuance that Chat Yuan was able to provide. Yeah, I mean, it was quite unbelievable and, you know, somewhat a bit freaky, though, I do think, Marty. So, Terence, back to you. Let's pull all this together. You gave some great depth on hardware and the evolution of chips and their manufacturing. Is this the opportunity for China to leapfrog what other countries are doing? So the reason why the Taiwan and Korean players have been doing so well is because they have decades of built-up experience. And let's talk about the CHIPS Act. We had $52 billion in subsidies and incentives. Well, TSMC spent $40 billion last year in CapEx alone. So these companies are outspending nations over decades. You cannot replicate that in a really, really short amount of time. So the difficulty with chip making comes in the miniaturization process. That's why the capital 
the R&D, the know-how, and that accumulated over time gives you a huge advantage over any newcomer. So we've just heard from the National People's Congress in China the emphasis that the government does have on innovation and creating a digital economy. So how far is China in terms of this decade-long process? I think you probably had the answer in your question. It's probably going to be a decade-long process. It's not something you could throw money at to solve because many of these companies are very well capitalized. The problem is there's no manual. There is no answer, there's no scientific answer to how do you get the next best node. A lot of it is trial and error. So it's not something you can overtake in a very, very short period of time. But you have to start somewhere. I'd now like to bring into the conversation Tina Tian, Equities Portfolio Manager, also based with us in Hong Kong. Good to have you on the show, Tina. Last time you were on one of our episodes, you were showcasing one of Tencent's games, which was very, very fun. I guess the key question, now you've been looking at the innovation sectors in China for so many years now. What do you think? Do you think China could really have a position in this game here versus other Asian neighbors or internationally? If we look at the global market share by geographies, Actually, China's share in the semi-sales has been growing for five, ten years already, and that trend continues. So, so China is actually doing okay. But the problem is, China is better positioned in the mature nodes instead of the advanced leading nodes. If you look at, um, you know, the, some of the mature parts of the semi-space, such as analog power, MCUs, you've seen strong growth in terms of number of Chinese companies that have been really doing well in those mature technology. And also back-end um, assembly and testing. In fact, China already has 40% global market share in those back-end assembly and testing. And, and China has also been, been quickly expanding their um, semi-manufacturing capacity, especially in, in memory. However, um, China remains quite behind in the advanced technology, such as leading node logic and foundry, such as semi-equipment, and the design tools. So, you know, Terence just mentioned it actually took a lot of time, decades, to build the capital, the R&D, the know-how. So China is catching up, but obviously still not there yet. So, Tina, where are you seeing the best opportunities today within China across the tech space? Sure. Um, as, as I just mentioned, China has been doing a good job in the mature part of the technology in the semi space. So I think, you know, for China semi, that's the way to play. Focus on mature nodes, the stuff that I mentioned, analog power, IC design, etc. And then if we look at kind of the broader tech space, right, outside semi, we're seeing a lot of domestic substitution happening, uh, partly because of the geopolitical tension, partly because the, the Chinese companies are really catching up in terms of the technology and product quality. We are seeing a lot more Chinese non-semi, other broader tech companies really taking share from the global players, right? Uh, for example, like industrial tech, automation, software, we're seeing a lot of very successful Chinese companies really rising. Thanks, Tina. Thanks, Terence. Let's turn to some of your colleagues. And as you know, um, we have analysts on the ground who put out feelers regularly. They travel extensively. They're constantly talking to management teams. And 
ever since uh, the reopening post-COVID and easing of restrictions, we've had a chance to do a lot of that. To find out more about the potential effects of the chip war on the ground, we asked five of Fidelity's investment team to tell us who they thought the winners of the trade war would be in their regions. So let's hear from Zaf Tiu for Southeast Asia, Chandra Swidar for India, Vivian Pai for Taiwan, Johnny Sang for the U.S., and Vivian Wong for mainland China. Hi, my name is Zef, and I cover tech in Southeast Asia. I think the biggest winners are uh, local semiconductor and hardware companies with strong balance sheets or with decent ability to raise uh, money from capital markets. I think it does not matter whether the tech involved is high or low end because the entire supply chain is moving out of China and there is a piece of the pie for everyone as long as you have the ability to invest in tandem with your customers. ASEAN is a demographically diverse market and each country has unique strengths uh, which will determine what type of opportunities they can capture. I think Singapore will capture most of the R&D and design opportunities which include uh, low volume prototyping for new product introductions. Malaysia will win most of the complex manufacturing jobs given their deep engineering talent pool, uh, while Vietnam will focus on high volume manufacturing uh, due to the abundance of uh, lower cost labor. I think Thailand will sit somewhere between Malaysia and Vietnam, and these four countries uh, should capture the lion's share of FDI inflows uh, as the ecosystems of the remaining countries are not as developed. I'm Chandra, I cover India. The government in India has announced a production living incentive scheme, which is totaling about $10 billion. This will be in the form typically of a capital subsidy uh, of up to 50%. Um, the government realizes that this is a very capital intensive industry, so has effectively gone about the process of appointing or seeking interest from a few industry, large industry houses have the best chance of being the winners from India. Hi, I'm Vivian Pai, Portfolio Manager in Taiwan. I think the winner of, of the trip world uh, for the tech hardware, that would be the mega ODN manufacturing company because they have global manufacturing footprints. So in the long term, they are easier to gain market share uh, versus uh, smaller or regional players. And for semiconductor, I believe the winner will be uh, foundries and DRAM players because they will enjoy the market share game uh, versus China because China players and competitors will be more restricted from advanced technology. Hey, I'm Jonathan. I'm an analyst in London covering US semiconductors. I've been looking at this area for nearly 10 years. And when I look across, I think the real winners here are US IDMs or integrated device manufacturers, companies which both manufacture chips and also, you know, design and, and, and sell those. And clearly their manufacturing arm will receive a big boost from US chip subsidies. You know, they get subsidies for making semiconductor plants. They get additional tax credits on top of that on the CapEx. You know, and they'll have the ability to invest in, you know, a growing capacity to serve the structural semiconductor demand over the next 10, 20 years. Hi, I'm Vivian Wang. I think it is a little bit too early to tell who will be the winner in China uh, in the chip war at the current stage. But I think in the mature semi side, we do have a chance to see some local winners who will gain shares because customers are more willing and open to local vendors in the current backdrop. 
It's interesting because as Zaf highlighted and also Chandra, just this China plus one strategy is really coming through. But I've got to say, I think, Terence, it was you who said earlier, I mean, this pie is just so big. One could argue that everyone can have pretty much a slice of it. And Catherine, it ties to the last episode of the podcast where we focused on supply chains, doesn't it? And one thing that always impresses me about Asia is the diversity of the region. And if you listen to each of those individuals tell where the advantage is, each country brings something slightly different and it all comes together to bring a full manufacturing process. We still have Tina and Terence with us, Marty. And I guess what's really fascinating is we have this huge demand supply globally and all the manufacturing prowess that's coming out of Asia in particular, China, obviously. Do people want to get into this industry? That's my first point. Like, is there enough, are there enough jobs? Are there enough people who want to do this? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, if you look at the talent pool in China, in the world, actually, China has the most STEM students. So that's that's a source of, of the you know engineers who are going to work in the industry longer term. Um, so from talent pool perspective, I, I don't think that there's a big problem in, in China. I, I think, you know, China government right now, what they are trying to do is is really to pull the whole nation together to promote the innovations, especially in the tech space. As, as Terence just mentioned, it requires a lot of capital, you know, accumulation experience. So the longevity of the policy support is, is really, really important. If you look at the recent two sessions meeting, which was which just, just concluded, the, the government has really tried to do a few things. One is to restructure um, the departments of ministries. So the Ministry of Science and Technology is being promoted. And some of their mundane jobs are excluded from their responsibility to the other ministries. And they will really focus on push forward the sort of the new whole nation system for innovation. So they will have the, the industry policies, um, ensure the funding, and come up with all the all the incentives for, for the people who work in the, in the industry. So I'm actually quite confident that China has the will, has the determination, has the entrepreneurship to really drive the innovation forward despite the current challenges from you know geopolitical tensions, et cetera. So Terrence, back to you, picking up on what Tina said about you know the whole ecosystem. Do you think there's going to be success in moving up the value chain within China? I think it'll be hard, but I wouldn't write China off uh, that quickly. I think with the U.S. restrictions that are coming down on equipment, on key critical components, it's going to put a dent in and a speed bump in how quickly China can move up the value chain and develop their own advance notes. Because as we know it, there is only one Dutch company that can provide the equipment that's necessary to make a very advanced nodes. There are only a handful of American and Japanese companies that, sell the, that provide the equipment to make uh, very, very advanced nodes. So without those, uh, there are other parts of the ecosystem that China has to build at the same time. And that's a very, very tall order for anybody, not just not just China. But China has also had a track record of proving that it can innovate. From a talent perspective, they have a big base uh, that companies like TSMC would love to have uh, an inflow of engineering talent and R&D talent. But, and from a capital standpoint, that's obviously a plus. But don't forget, there are a lot of examples in history where very well-endowed and very well-capitalized companies don't make it. So just having capital and talent and all these elements in place do not guarantee success. 
but we will have to see the execution of, of the Chinese government and the leaders who are, who, who are pushing this project uh, going forward. So that segues very nicely into the next question that we asked our analyst team, Terrence. And you talked about a little bit how China may evolve winners, but also where the risks are. And the question we asked the analysts next was about the losers with this whole dynamic of manufacturing and, and, and in the technology space. So let's go back and hear from our analysts on the ground. I think the biggest losers in Southeast Asia tech will be the local startups because the influx of MNCs uh, such as Intel, LAM Research and Applied Materials is sucking the local talent pool dry. Wages uh, in Penang, for example, are up by 50 to 100% in the last two years, which uh, larger companies with uh, higher margins can absorb, but not startups which are mainly loss-making. Yeah, so I think uh, there are no material losers from India because the starting base for India is extremely low. I mean, we uh, consume a total of $10 billion of semiconductors. We import $55 billion. We export some. We're still doing largely assembly. There's no major semiconductor manufacturing as such in India. So we're starting from a zero base. So I don't think there are any particular losers in India. Uh, for the losers in uh, chip war in Taiwan, I believe in the long term, uh, the foundry and IC design, the fabulous uh, company, they will watch the risk. First, uh, for IC design, fabulous company, because I think uh, China competitor, they will have more subsidy from China or to compete with Taiwan fabulous company. So some of the uh, big company, they will need to watch the competition from China that uh, they will end to have their own IC chips. Secondly, I think foundry uh, makers, they will be also can be the losers because in the long term, all the semiconductor company globally, they have a thinking that uh, they want not only China plus one uh, strategy, they also want Taiwan plus one strategy so that uh, they will tend to reallocate their orders to companies other than Taiwan. So in the US, I'm not sure there's outright losers, but I think there's companies which have more risk than others. For example, when I think about fabulous semiconductors in the US, which use TSMC or other kind of Chinese or Taiwanese foundry, there's obviously risk of supply disruption if geopolitical volatility increases. I think a second area I think about is companies which serve trailing edge kind of automotive power semis. Now, if you think about China's strategy, if they can't do leading edge, they would double down on trailing edge automotive power. And also they have a lot of domestic electric vehicle companies where they can push their demand towards domestic chip suppliers. So US companies trying to serve that market may ultimately find the opportunity smaller than they think. I think losers in China and the chip world will be those focusing on the leading edge chip design because because of the sanctions from the US, more and more companies in the leading edge side are getting increasing difficulty in getting um, the necessary software tools, including EDA, uh, to design their chips, which will cap their capability in further um, product upgrade and market share gain.
And as Jonathan highlighted, you can see why we're at this point in time regarding increased geopolitical tensions, given the innovation, the dynamics, and of course, the challenges that are going on within the industry. Terence, maybe over to you. Can you comment on the losers as you see it, kind of listening to what the analysts said and pulling it all together? Well, Marthy, I think the one of the biggest losers uh, would be the consumers. With globalization, each region and country is able to specialize in its in, in the part of the ecosystem that they're best at. Now that everyone has to bring everything within their own soil for reasons of national security, for supply chain security, it removes that efficiency of scale and increases the need to spend more money to increase your capital intensity by duplicating capacity across different geographic areas. So the cost of manufacturing will definitely be going up. The cost of designing something would also be going up. So I think consumers will probably have to pay more for the same product going forward. Tino, do you think it will be paying more for better quality? It will just be a generic price increase? I think we should see both, right? Because of you know this, the duplication in supply chain, many parts of, especially for the chip side, the cost will go up. So basically all the devices that we're using will probably have to have to suffer. And I guess also for some products, if you constrain or, or restrict the access to certain technology, then the owner of those technology will probably be able to charge higher prices for certain pockets of, of the chips, of the products. Then you, you might see you know, more price increase for those products as well. Tina, are there sub-segments where there's better pricing power than others? Yes. So if, if you look at the semi-supply chain, there are pockets or part, parts of the supply chain where we actually see natural monopolies. For example, the high-end semi-cap equipment um, in lithography, for example. So, so these guys are really, you know, they have dominate that part of the technology. So they would be able to charge high prices and, you know, gain some nice premiums there. Yeah, you know, Catherine, the other the other theme that comes out of this is inflation. And I know we come to that one so often, given obviously what's going on with rates globally, but we've just talked about price increases and design increases and whether pricing power can be passed along. Can't get away from that topic, can we? Not at all. And again, what came out of this episode was it's not just the Chinese government who are really focusing on promoting and helping in terms of funding this sector, but on the ground, are we really seeing China innovate? Yes. Um, so, so as I, I just mentioned, I think the domestic substitution is a big thing. Of course, we're getting challenges in the leading edge of the semi-space, but we are seeing a lot of opportunities in other areas, right? Be it the industrial tech, software, you know, renewable energies, it's just, you know, China is, is a huge market. You have the policy support, you have you have the talent pool. And gradually, we, we should see more and more Chinese companies up and coming in those new areas. Yeah, I would agree with what Tina said. If you look at the history of China manufacturing, what China has been able to do in different sub-segments of tech, for example, like display, like panels, and other parts of manufacturing, is that they are able to scale a technology that they've acquired and caught up with really, really quickly. For example, on the LCD panel 
in, within tech hardware, uh, the Koreans have essentially exited the LCD display segment. Uh, Samsung and LG Display have publicly announced that they are no longer playing this game because China has caught up in the technology and they have commoditized it. Uh, so they have to keep moving more premium and more uh, more advanced. But China is always right at their heels. So if history repeats, it would be a matter of time. You know, I uh, I have a lot to learn here, guys, in terms of the industry, the dynamics, the constant changes and evolution we're seeing. I mean, my electricity went off yesterday, and I, I it was it was amazing how you cannot do anything without electricity. <laughs> yeah, that 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 is very true. And like, I think there's a lot to reflect on. I think what what Tina and Terence both talked about just the innovation and how rapidly things are transforming. Yeah, obviously all over the world, but particularly in the region. And I think, Catherine, I know we talk about this all the time. This is the space to watch in China, isn't it? There's going to be so much investment in technology. So that brings us to the end of this episode. A big thank you to our guests, Tina Tian and Taryn Tsai, and to our other contributors, Mia Huang, Soft Tu, Chandra Sadar, Vivian Pai, Johnny Sang, and Vivian Wang. And thank you for listening. If you want to read more of what's being covered today, please go to your local Fidelity website or fidelityinternational.com. Producers were Kim Ju Ko and Neil Goff, with production support from Seb Morton Clark, Rory Fong, Tommy Sue, and Keith Chuan. The editor is Richard Edgar. Until next time, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local fidelity website.